Hello and welcome to a special bonus beats edition of Inside the Groove. My name is Edward Russell and today I'm joined by a special guest. He's a big fan of Madonna and also a musician. Darren Hayes was frontman to the band Savage Garden, who enjoyed big hits with songs such as Truly Madly Deeply and To The Moon and Back. Darren has also enjoyed a solo career and in particular covered Madonna's Ray of Light to, in my opinion, absolute perfection. So thank you, Darren Hayes, for joining me for today's podcast. And and thank you also for the, the wonderful support you've been giving to the podcast. I am literally a fan. It's one of my favourite podcasts. I'll be honest and say it's my favourite podcast at the moment, but it's brilliantly done. And what I love about your approach is what I think a lot of Madonna fans have always felt, uh, which is that you're focusing on her as a songwriter and as a producer and a melodist and a lyricist uh, because she's brilliant. So it's fascinating to take these deep dives behind the music. So thank you for doing it. Oh, my absolute pleasure, Darren. I mean, I don't think we can underrate Madonna as a melodist, really. I had the privilege to work with Rick Knowles, who Madonna worked with on Ray of Light, and his opinion of her as a melodist is just out of this world. I mean, he's worked with some of the greatest artists of all time. If you look at his catalogue, you know, he played me some very early demos that they did in the studio together, and I was astounded by not just the quality of her voice, but how quickly those sessions came together. She would be very diligent. She would turn up to the studio at a certain time. She would work for two or three hours and then she would leave and they would usually have a song written in a day. And most of the songs that they worked on for Ray of Light, they wrote within a day. So was there a moment in your life where you, like early on, where you first heard a Madonna song or saw a performance that really sort of grabbed you and, and hooked you and made you become a fan? Yeah, there are two really distinct moments. One of them is I loved the sound of the first album. I remember the first time I ever heard Lucky Star and I loved the bass line. I thought the bass line was extraordinary and I didn't really understand it at the time, but as I got older, I realized that I love synths and um, I love the production on that record a lot. Um, But it was really the Virgin Tour. The first time I saw Dress You Up live, there was something about that arrangement I didn't realize that Patrick Leonard was on stage with her. I didn't realize that half the people that had made the Like a Virgin record were absolute legends like Nile Rodgers. But to me, it just stood out. Uh, and there was this raw kind of unbridled energy about her. It just leapt off the TV screen. And I think, you know, back in that era, there was Michael Jackson, there was Prince, uh, there was Culture Club. There was George Michael uh, and there was Madonna and this was the beginning of her becoming a superstar. I just remember seeing that video and thinking, I may want to do this one day. And You're right. And I think she was a superstar, not because she was having money thrown at her or extra support from the record company. She just knew what she was doing and was working really, really hard. Yeah, I always love this about her work ethic because you see it in her as a dancer first in that... She almost over-articulates when she's on stage, but it is that thing that she and Michael Jackson had where if you put her in a group of five or six dancers, you couldn't take your eye off her. And I know that she's a trained dancer, I know that she's an incredibly skilled dancer, but I don't think that's why we couldn't take our eyes off her. I think there was something, there was a hunger inside her, and that hunger translated to the back of the auditorium. And that's a really hard thing to learn, and it's a very 
almost a subliminal thing. I think some of the greatest superstars like Elvis had this thing. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to be in the same room as her, um, but my experience of being in the orbit of Madonna was like it was a delicious black hole where all energy just traveled toward and you just willingly wanted to give yourself up and go there. And whether that's a combination of her life experiences, uh, her relationship with her father, the loss of a mother, all of those ingredients that create wonderful stars, she has them and had them tenfold even in 1985-86. That star quality, I think that comes from you know, in the beginning as a performer, a desire to fix perhaps something within that is um, deficient. And if someone is lucky, like Madonna is, then once they get past the applause and realize that the attention and the fame, that's not going to fill that hole, well, what they can do with that attention that they're given is extraordinary because you have the opportunity to become an artist. And I love that about Madonna. I love that she does things to be provocative, not just to cause attention, but I mean literally to provoke a conversation, to um, to to, uh, to start um, a, a question in your mind. Uh, you probably saw her on the Madame X tour, but it was there were some moments in that show where I could not believe I was witnessing her do these things. She does not need to perform in 2020 and yet I'm so glad that she is because the things that she was doing and that she was saying they sent ripples throughout the room and it was it was fascinating to watch I mean do you think she's not always been taken seriously I mean when I spoke to friends about this podcast and told them I was doing it they were like what is there to say about Madonna as a songwriter and I think lots of people don't really understand her abilities yeah, I think I identify with being underappreciated uh, in that regard because when I began as a songwriter, I was what you would call a melodist. Today, you would call that person a top liner, which I find incredibly dismissive. So essentially, if you don't play a classical instrument, a lot of the ways that great songwriters like Madonna write a song is someone will play some chords and she will freestyle. She will mumble, she will come up with some melodies, those uh, indecipherable words and melodies will then eventually become vowel sounds, they become lyrics, and a song is written. So you have a chord progression that maybe someone like Rick Knowles is providing. And then you have this, um, you know, this story, this melody, this, this hook that someone like a Madonna is writing. And I think in the past, technology has changed this view a lot, but in the past, I think the person who was coming up with the melody was perhaps dismissed because that wasn't necessarily an instrument. Madonna definitely addressed that. I think her adopting of the guitar, for example, I think that was a way for her to take back some of that control. Uh, I think her abilities as a producer are the same as, as anyone's, like Will I Am or, or anyone who is perhaps not um, a classically trained musician but knows how to shape direct sound how to ask what they want, how to keep pushing in the studio. But anyone who has worked with her as, as a co-songwriter will tell you hands down it's, um, you know, she she's one of the best. But then my favourite is is Angel. I think her work with Stephen Bray is incredible, but the melody in Angel is extraordinary. Um, 
Her work with Patrick Leonard, obviously, is extraordinary. So when she works with somebody that can give her a chord inversion or a soundscape that excites her, I can see as a songwriter why that would let her mind run free and, and, and be unbridled and come up with some extraordinary things. But I think that way of looking down upon a melodist, I think that's gone now. If we look at an artist today like, say, Billie Eilish or Katy Perry, um, yes, Katy Perry works with some of the biggest songwriters in the world, but it's, you know, Katy will say herself she doesn't consider herself to be the best singer, the best dancer, the best looking person. These are all things that Madonna used to say about herself. What that skill is, is writing a good hook, writing a melody and, and acting it, performing it, committing it to a performance. It's interesting you should say that because I think I may have said in one of the recent podcasts that whatever you think of Madonna uh, on film, you can't uh, deny that her acting ability when she's singing is phenomenal. When we listen to those vocals of Borderline recently, she's really selling that song. I loved that you said that. And... Yes, uh, my husband is a theatre director and we talk a lot about the fact that there's a big difference between somebody who has an extraordinary voice and somebody who's a great singer. And they're not often the same thing. In my world, I'm not often a fan of someone who is technically the greatest singer of all time. A really good example of this actually is uh, the theatre and film and stage actress Judi Dench. If you've ever seen her performance of Send In The Clowns, now, Judy has vocal nodules. Um, she has a very, very limited range. But her performance of that song will make you cry. And it's because she's inhabiting the character and she's inhabiting those emotions and she's expressing them. And Madonna does that. When I listen to a song like Love Don't Live Here Anymore, and it's a cover. She's covering this song. Her voice cries. When I listened to The Power of Goodbye, I <laughs> I was going through the end of a relationship when that album came out, and that song killed me. There are so many moments in Madonna's personal life that show up in her music. Um, I wouldn't wish bad romance on Madonna, but her breakup records, they're great for a reason, because as an actor and as a performer with her voice, She's able to convey something that we all relate to. Expertly put, thank you. That's that's wonderful. Uh, you mentioned um, Power of Goodbye and that period in, of your life, and that's reminded me about your performance of Ray of Light. Can you tell me a bit about how that came about? Yeah, um, it's a really funny story, actually. So it goes back to my Savage Garden days, and I was on tour for our first album, and I used to do Ray of Light at Soundcheck, partly because I was raised listening to a lot of Motown records and a lot of female singers, and the way that I learned to sing was through imitation. And I didn't realize that I had a falsetto. I didn't realize that's what that quality was in my voice. It's not called that in the female voice. Mm -hmm. I think in Madonna, it's called something like a high pharyngeal sound, but yeah. it's, it's an operatic sound, but it's this new part of her voice that you've talked about that she discovered with Joan later. Well, ironically, I was working with the same vocal coach and still do to this day, actually. She lives in New York. Her name is Joan Lader. She is the person who, who trained Madonna for Evita. I had to go and see Joan because it, it was my first ever touring experience and I was losing my voice. So I had all these skills from Joan, had my love of Madonna and that record. 
and I would do the song at Soundcheck. And Tommy Mottola was the president of Sony Music at the time. We were on tour, and it got back to Tommy Mottola that Darren Hayes sings a version of Ray of Light. That's kind of good. And so Carice heard this. She told Madonna. Madonna called Tommy Mottola. And all I know is I'm backstage at the Beacon Theatre in New York, and Tommy Mottola calls me, and he says, Yo, I hear you do Ray of Light in your show. And first of all, I'm panicked because the president of Sony Music is calling me. We've never really had a conversation before. And I said, um, kind of, no, not really. I, I mean, I just, I do it in soundcheck. And he said, well, Madonna's heard that you do it, so you do it. And I went, yes, I do it. Yes, yes, I do that song. <laughs> and he said, good, she's coming tonight. And he hung up. Uh, we went on stage at the Beacon Theatre. I know that she came because I remember when she when she left so I wasn't sure where she was sitting but I did the performance of the show uh, when I got to Ray of Light I was so panicked I did the song and when I finished there was this commotion and I saw Madonna stand up and it was she had very long black hair and it was I guess it was right before she filmed the video for Nothing Really Matters but she had actually dyed her hair dark again I remember seeing her and just completely panicking and that's it end of the story Many, many years later, uh, I want to say probably 2006, I got invited to a dinner party by a mutual friend. I'd never met her before. And this uh, dinner party was a surprise birthday party for Madonna, who had fallen off a horse earlier that year and broken her bones. <laughs> and so I didn't have any idea that she would be at this party because if, if I'd known, I would never have gone. I walked into this tiny dinner party and I was mortified. Everybody was dressed to the nines. There was somebody, oh, who was there? Um, Stuart Price was there. Uh, uh, the, the lead singer of Texas was there. A few other famous people were there, but I just saw Madonna, who looked exactly like Madonna from her hung up period. I died. I thought I was going to drop dead. The first thing she said to me was, did you guys know you were coming to a party? You didn't dress up. And we were in, we were in jeans and t-shirts. I was dying. And my friend said, Darren, you know Madonna. Oh my gosh. I mean, how do you answer a question like that? So I extended my hand and I said, we've never met. And she said to me, I came to your show actually in, Be in the Beacon Theatre. And then she asked me to tell the story that I just told you. So that's, uh, that's, that's my love of the song. And that was the full circle moment. I did get a good quip in because uh, I told the story and uh, I said, and you, I never knew if you liked it or not. And she said, oh, I loved it. It was great. I said, oh, great. Okay, great. So we sat down. I was dying. That was that dinner party. So years later, when I was approached by that TV show, um, I thought I would finally commit that song to tape. Sorry that was a long story, but it's a it's one of my favorite stories. That's a pretty good story. If I had that story, Darren, I would have made it twice as long. <laughs> so well done for that. Um, <laughs> I'm going to play a little bit of your performance of Ray of Light now. Here we go. She's got herself a universe going quickly For the call of thunder It threatens everyone And I feel
That's fantastic. Bravo. A wonderful performance. Now, do you ever listen back to yourself and think, oh, that's not bad? Or, or, or do you cringe when you hear yourself? That's such a great question because I'm going to sound like a big Hollywood cliche, but I really don't because I'm, I'm so judgmental. Really, really judgmental. It's only when the years pass, maybe 10 or 15 years pass, that I can look back and have as much compassion as I do for my bad haircuts. <laughs> um, I think I, I think it would be weird if I, if if I was proud of it, but I, I I love that song. I have so much respect for the performance of that song. And you, in your breakdown, noticed something that I th- I didn't even know was in the track. So I'm going to do it for you. But you oh. talked about uh, Madonna doing a siren. Yes, in that song. Well, actually, it is one of Joan Later's uh, vocal warm-ups, and Madonna is essentially doing something. It's called a trill. Yeah. And you do that if you're, you want to get your voice into the register of the note that you have to hit, but in a way that won't cause um, uh, friction or cause the vocal cords to come together. Mm -hmm. So she's going. So if you do that, it's like a trill. It gets your vocal cords to stretch to hit the note that you, you want to hit. And then you're free, the muscles are relaxed, and there is a muscle memory a few seconds before the take that's already there so that you can go on and and do that note. Excellent. And there's a thing at the very end, you hear it in the outro that you played. I'm not going to attempt to do it now. (laughs) If I'm warmed up, I can in falsetto. But it's when she says, and I feel she does the highest note that I think she's ever recorded, and then she laughs. Yes. Well, that's... The laugh is because... As a singer, I think what I can hear is she's not quite sure where her voice is going to go and it glides beautifully and deliciously up into this register that she's never, ever hit before. (laughs) And it's an elastic type of feeling, but it's also a feeling of like jumping off a cliff and not knowing if the bungee rope is attached. As a singer, I think maybe she wasn't quite sure if she would hit that note and she did. And, um, yeah, but she does it live sometimes too, so... Yeah, she does indeed. I wish that we could hear those dry vocals without any effects so we could analyse them and hear if she's doing it all in one take. Well, I think she is doing it, so I do it as well, but that... That through the endless year... That part, I'm not going to do it for you, but you can do that in one take. If you're breathing correctly and back then, boy, was she a stickler for warming up and warming down and... Um, and she still is. So I think it is one take. I know there's a lot of delay on there, but I think she did it in one breath. I'd like to talk to you about your own music and Madonna's influence. I remember when I first heard Popular, I thought, hmm, I think he's been listening to Madonna and Mirwais a little bit. Totally. The American Life album is probably one of my favourite <laughs> Madonna records. I mean, music, I'll be honest about this, music, I'm obsessed with that album. At the time, I remember actually hating it the first time I heard it. I remember thinking, what is this trash? Because Ray of Light <laughs> had been this sort of immersive, beautiful, analogue, blippy, bleepy, William Orbit warm beds of synths. And and music was so angular. And, and um, it, at the time, it seemed so throwaway. Well, I couldn't have been more incorrect it's one of my favorite madonna albums of all time i think it's a masterpiece yeah i totally agree and it was her first time working with the mix engineer mark stent or whose whose nickname is spike and i believe uh 
you mentioned this, but Miraways came to the attention of Guy Osiri, who was doing A&R for Madonna's Maverick label. And I'm not sure at what point yes. the decision was to have Madonna guest on Miraways' record, but I do know that that's where the spike and Madonna connection happened. And so Spike was brought on board to mix the record and I knew what keyboard they'd used. A lot of that record was uh, a Nord uh, stage. And so a lot of those like in American life, a lot of those sounds um, were from a Nord keyboard and I was obsessed with them. And so with my co-producer, Robert Conley, we made a whole album mostly using the Nord and we had sent demos to Spike who in the past had refused to work with me. I'd sent him some music and he thought it was naff. Uh, and we laugh about this. He he wouldn't mix my first solo record. And so when I sent him uh, Popular and a few other songs, he was just like, whoa, yes, I, I, I want to work with you. Let's do this. And it was an incredibly transformative experience. I think I've worked with... Um, Steve Sedelnik is, is a drummer that drums with Madonna Live sometimes. And I think Steve played on on my record as well um and uh but yes all of those dry vocal treatments all of that fear territory as a singer where we're used to swimming in reverb and delay well spike was not about that and nor was Mirway. so that's that's kind of um a huge reference and and unashamedly uh, so (laughs) (laughs) okay so it's time to give you the quick fire round now i want you to answer me as quickly as possible with the questions I'm going to give you. Now, you've already mentioned that Angel's your favourite Madonna song, so forgetting Angel, what else would be your top Madonna track? Oh, oh gosh, uh, Into the Groove. Oh, good choice. I'll be covering that song soon. Tell me why it's your favourite. Uh, partly because it was the the bass line. I mean, I'm obsessed with the bass line. I, it informs me to this day uh, about how I write bass lines. Um, I think it's peak Madonna. Um, I loved Madonna writing with Stephen Bray, but it was also the first 12-inch record I ever bought, and I think the B-side was Angel. Yes, it was indeed. Okay, next rapid-fire question. What do you think is the most underrated Madonna song? I'm going to say Who's That Girl? I know that it was a big hit, but it, it seems like it's like a throwaway song, and it was from a movie, and the movie was objectively not brilliant. Um, but the middle eight of that song reminds me of the middle eight of uh, True Blue. It just bursts out. I think she even says it, light up my life so blind I can't see. And that's what I think about Madonna. I, when I think about her, I think of these these little sort of explosions of joy in amongst uh, these dark bass lines. I agree. And Madonna's middle eights are astounding. Hung up, express yourself. They're all really strong. Totally. And I'm also glad that I'm talking to a Brit here when we talk about middle eights because we're talking about the same thing. Americans call them bridges but Madonna's middle eights are so good that she they become middle 16s because she just comes back to them into the groove has amazing middle eights I mean it's just yeah that's what I mean about someone and I imagine it's this I'm gonna just say this off the top of my head because it's just come to me now I think it's Detroit I think it's Michigan I think it's her listening to Motown I think her R&B roots um, really gave her an education about you know what hooks are and and what those things are in a song back in the day i would always say you know when we're writing a song we would try to make the listener either want to rewind the tape or keep listening to the radio because you want to hear that bit again 
Now that doesn't exist, but that was one of the criteria for writing a hook of a song. You wanted people to hear it again. Okay, so next question. Which Madonna song could you quite happily never hear again? <laughs> this is going to upset a lot of Madonna fans. I'm not a huge fan of the Erotica album. I know that there are some brilliant songs on there, but um, I think it might be that song about oral sex. I can't remember what it's called. Uh, <laughs> where Life Begins. <laughs> where Life Begins. I'm happy to put that song where some of the really bad Darren Hayes songs live. Ooh, good get-out clause there, Darren. Well done. Um, I hear what you're saying about Erotica. It's got some fantastic songs on it, like Deeper and Deeper and Rain. But there's a lot of filler as well, and it's much more production-led than songwriting-led. Yeah, I can understand. It's funny, because recently, since the, the anniversary of Vogue, I've been through your podcast uh, and then obviously down the YouTube um, sort of wormhole, been really exploring why Shep Pettibone was so important to her during that period and her fascination, I think, with um, reinvention in terms of she'd begun in that club scene, you know, there she was at Danceteria trying to get tapes played, you know, Stephen Bray, she was working with, um, you know, young DJs making records. Um, and then all of a sudden now she's making like a prayer and she's working with some of the best musicians money can buy. And that record is largely live. And I think, um, you know, that, that d desire to go back to her club roots and the, the, the sort of um, the uptick in sampling and things, it was a very edgy, cool thing to do. And, and I understand after the experience of recording uh, Vogue why Madonna might, might want to do that. I think it's just at the time, I don't think Shep had the um, the musical chops that someone like a Patrick Leonard had. And when I say that, I just mean that Madonna's musical chops by that point were so sophisticated that I think as a sparring partner in terms of writing classic songs, she needed somebody that was, that was on her level in that way. Shep is a genius and I would rip off every limb to work with him. And I admire that record for its creativity and uh, its soundscapes and things like that. But I, I guess I'm a fan of song first. And so uh, that's that's why for me the record isn't, isn't a favourite. But I totally get why it is for a lot of, lot of young people, younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> I think also it's kind of caught up in the imagery of the erotica video and the sex book as well. And some people love it for that. And for many, I guess it turns them off. Uh, Madonna um, and what she was trying to achieve at the time. Yeah, it's funny. I think as a fan too, because I was, I'm trying to think, I must have been 17 or 18 when it came out. And I didn't realise at the time it was probably just because I was gay. Um, so there were obviously images in there that aroused me because there were men in there. But it was a strange thing seeing this, uh, well, it's probably the Madonna Hall complex, seeing a Madonna in this sexual way, in a way that you could reveal nothing more. There's a quote from Madonna, I'm going to bastardize it or paraphrase it here, but she said something along the lines of, um, you know, if I reveal everything, then, then I've got no reason to keep you interested. And to me, my view of sort of the sexual tease and um, flirtation in pop stars was always based around that. And Madonna sort of crossed over that, that line intentionally 
um, because that's what she wanted to, you know, she wanted to play this character, she wanted to, to be provocative and she did that. But as a teenager, I was kind of like, no, 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 I, I don't want to see you naked. Um, now I look back on it and I understand where it's coming from and there's this incredibly sort of intellectual disconnect between sex and love, you know. Um, there's this exploration of what eroticism is as opposed to romanticism, um, you know. So she's she's a, a three-dimensional woman, and I totally understand it. At the time, I was horrified. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much we can discuss about Madonna. Darren, I think we should do a weekly podcast. <laughs> no, because then I wouldn't get to listen to yours. <laughs> That's a very good point. <laughs> um, okay, so your final rapid question. Which Darren Hayes song should Madonna cover? Honestly... Madonna does not need to be doing no Darren Hayes songs. I might be writing some things at the moment, and I'm always writing things that perhaps in the way that Neil Tennant does, I put myself in her shoes, and she's a muse for me when I write. I will tell you that I am that guy who gets on the treadmill, and I probably think that I'm on the treadmill of the reinvention tour when I'm singing Ecstatic Process. <laughs> <laughs> we all do that, don't we? But no, I love being a fan, and... I'm not trying to put myself down. I really just love being a fan of her. That's why I'm so glad my acquaintance of her is one she probably would never even remember. Um, I'm glad that I hold her at such a distance where she continues to admire me and Sorry, was she? I continue to admire her. Um, Freudian slip. Uh, and she's an idol to me. She's an idol to me, and I look up to her, and she's the kind of artist that I want to be when uh, I am her age. Um, I, I always want to be able to continue to, to do what I do, and she doesn't need me. She doesn't need anyone. I, I, I'm, I'm excited for Madonna to sit down and do a record um, where um, she is Marlena Dietrich. You know, she's um, Nico. She's somebody who, she's 70, and perhaps her voice is more limited and her body doesn't do what it used to do. But the spirit, the life experiences, the poetry, the sense of humor, the things that she has to say, I want to hear them on a record. I want her to keep making music uh, until she's not here anymore. Darren, thank you so much for taking part and sharing your stories and your love for Madonna. Thanks also for your continued um, appreciation of the podcast. I'll be back very soon with a regular episode. But thank you once again, uh, Darren Hayes. I'll be listening. Thanks for having me. The next edition of Inside the Groove will discuss Madonna's collaboration with an established musician with a very strong track record of productions and songwriting behind him. We'll be taking you to the summer of 2008 and Madonna's work with the Neptunes and producer Pharrell Williams for the song Give It To Me. I'll speak to you very shortly.